story ten of the times red cross story-book by famous novelists serving in his majesty's forces by various this librivox recording is in the public domain story ten carnage by compton mackenzie royal navy i am not a man naturally fond of adventure but on the contrary have preserved from earliest youth an ambition to stay at home and watch from a sunny window-seat the orderly course of humanity along an orderly street fortune however by depriving my parents of everything except myself and myself of everything except a flute made me a raggle-taggle wanderer dependent for my livelihood on the charms of music ignorant of luxury through the exigencies of a nomadic existence i owned nevertheless a very fastidious taste which often led me to despise the miseries of my situation so much so that i believe i would rather a thousand times depend on the hard ground than sacrifice my sensibility in the endurance of an uncongenial bedfellow so much by way of explaining the following adventure which was actually produced by my inability to suffer a common hardship of the wanderer's lot on a december dusk of the year seventeen fifty three i found myself with apparently no prospect of a lodging on a bleak high-road in the middle of cornwall what horrid impulse took me to that barbarous peninsula i cannot now recall exactly but probably my journey was connected with some roadside rumour of prosperity to be found in the west of england at the holiday season my first experience of cornish hospitality was not happy for having begun to flute merrily in the yard of an outlying farmhouse the savage owner loosed a pair of lean hounds who followed me with a very odious barking nearly a half mile along the road i was determined to avoid such places in future and to keep my breath for a town where the amenity of a closer social intercourse might have evolved a more generous spirit among the inhabitants with gloomy thoughts i trudged on without a glimpse of any village or hamlet or even of an isolated dwelling such as i had lately tried the night was coming up fast behind me and i was already pondering the imminent extinction of my life's flame in the wind-swept bogs on either side of the path when i came suddenly on a small inn not visible before on account of the road's curve and a clump of firs shorn and blistered by the prevailing wind here i asked for a bed but on being informed that i must share it with a degraded idiot whom i perceived slobbering in a corner of the tap-room i scorned the accommodation and inquired the distance and direction of the nearest village there's no village for another five miles or more said the landlord what's your trade master i did not wish to gratify the bumpkin's curiosity but reflecting that i might hear of a junketing in the neighbourhood told him i was a musician then why don't he make a canna-break he asked canna-break i exclaimed how on earth shall i make for a place of whose existence i am only this moment aware never heard a canna-break of the starlings he exclaimed why tis a famous place here around and the old lord he might be proud to listen to a parcel of music come i'll show you the road a burst of gibberish from the idiot made up my mind and i hurried after the landlord who with much circumlocution described my route i left him by the inn door and when i turned once or twice to wave a farewell 
saw him standing there a white patch in the fading light i passed according to his directions a dry tree a slab of granite shaped like an elephant's back and a stretch of waste water stuck here and there with withered reeds like an old brush until i reached a tall celtic cross that leaned very forbiddingly towards the path here a side-track dipped down from the main road to a valley whose ample vegetation contrasted strangely with the barren moors above my path was soon overarched with trees a smell of damp woodland pervaded its gloom and my footsteps were muffled by the drift of wet leaves had it not been for the deep ruts into which from time to time i slipped i should have concluded that i had missed the path and was penetrating towards the heart of a forest i emerged from the avenue at last though by now it was so dark that only the fresher air and the rasping of my feet on stones told me i was again in open country but it was impossible to advance and i was beginning to regret the inn and rail at myself for objecting to the idiot's company when i saw above a black hill-top the yellow rim of the full moon whose light increasing every moment was presently strong enough to show me i was not fifty yards from the great gates of kennebrick yet i was half afraid to set them creaking in the silence so menacing were they between their tall stone pillars so complete was the absence of any welcome i have often had occasion to visit the seats of the nobility and gentry in more civilized corners of england and the air of abandonment that surrounded the entrance of kennebrick did not seem to consort with the traditions of any famous or honored name the very moonlight in that hollow was tainted with a miasma setting no clear contrasts of shadow and silver robbing the pillars of all solidity and giving the landscape the tremulous outlines of a half-remembered dream i had never before experienced the sensation of absolute decay i had been affected by the fall of autumn leaves from dripping branches by the melting of ice on warm winter mornings but here dissolution was silent without a curlew's cry or lisp of withered grass to mark its accomplishment at last by an effort of common sense i pushed the gates ajar and the creaking of them as they swung back upon their hinges followed me up the moss-grown drive with a wailful indignation the shrubbery planted round the gates did not extend far and the drive soon unfolded its direction running straight and bare over a wide undulating grassland populated with the shadowy forms of cattle to the doors of Canterbury a long low building of the undistinguished architecture which i had already learned to associate with cornish houses i stood a while contemplating the mansion that seemed impalpable in the webs of the moon there was neither barking of dogs nor any sign of human life until i observed the shadow of a man carrying from room to room of the second story a circle of candlelight increasing and diminishing with each entrance and exit i supposed it to be a servant's nightly round of inspection and assured of the existence of life within moved across to the heavily nailed door i would have pulled at once the great iron bell chain had it not been for a strange disinclination to destroy the quiet with so wild a sound as it was i stood there holding my breath i believe while i deciphered the coat of arms above the door a medley of turks heads and birds 
Then, with the slight knowledge of French gleaned on my wanderings, I fell to translating the motto of the family, aux amis l'amour, aux ennemis la mort. Notwithstanding the pledge of this sentiment in stone, I could not spur myself into arousing the inmates. But as there was a rank growth of grass between the drive and the house itself, I availed myself of its quiet to crawl round and peer unheard into the windows on the ground floor. On a closer view of the window to the right of the door, I saw glinting on the darkness of heavy curtains a thin line of light. Without more ado, I pulled out my flute and started, Come, lasses and lads. This harmless old air seemed to produce a most distressing effect upon the inmates, for the curtains were immediately flung back, and an elderly gentleman, with wig all awry and hands tugging at his stock, stared out into the night as if afraid of hell. I tapped gently with my flute upon the lattice, and in response to my knocking, but with evident dismay, my listener was persuaded to throw it open. Whether the sight of him, pale and horror-struck, had led me to expect a timid inquiry as to my business, I do not know, but I doubt if I ever heard so deep a voice from any human creature before. It rumbled like a bull's, and I vow alarmed me more than the music of my instrument had alarmed its owner. A horrid stream of blasphemies heralded his demand to know my business. "'My name, my lord, is Tripkeny, Peter Tripkeny, a flute-player, and your lordship's very humble, obedient servant to command.' This frank avowal had the effect of slightly mitigating his wrath, and he was pleased to ask me what I did in his park at such an ungodly hour. "'Indeed, my lord, I was sent here.' "'Sent here, you vagabond? By whom?' "'By an innkeeper who plies a poor trade on the desolate moors adjacent to your lordship's estate.' He seemed relieved by my information, and was gracious enough to ask if I could play any sea-songs. I answered I could play and sing The Ballad of the Golden Vanity, and many more besides, as well as any man alive. "'Harkee, Cynthia,' he said, turning to address another inmate, "'there's a musician outside. Shall we have him in, girl? Shall we have a merry-making? The poor wretch looks as if a good supper would do him no harm. Ah, sirrah, can you eat?' he asked, turning round again to me. I assured him I had a very tolerable appetite, and he bade me ring the bell forthwith vowing he would give me bed and board for a night's music. I made haste to obey his orders, and when I stepped into the great hall, lighted by a score of candles, and the blaze of a gigantic fire roaring on the hearth, was glad I had done so. His lordship, with much condescension, presented me to his daughter, the Honourable Miss Cynthia Starling, who received me with the courtesy it delights a woman of rank to exercise. In the presence of this lovely creature I threw off every evil foreboding, and made haste to entertain the noble company with as much wit as I could command. I may say I was very successful. His lordship laughed very heartily at all my sallies, and once or twice I plainly detected a faint smile pass over the classic features of the honourable and handsome young woman. His lordship excused himself from joining me at supper pointing out with much intelligence that, having already dined, a second meal so soon after the other would be likely to injure his night's rest. 
i cordially agreed with him and drank his health in a pint bumper of a very level and solid old burgundy his lordship was pleased to acknowledge my toast and indeed went so far as to drink prosperity to the humble flute-player sheltered by his hospitable roof when i had eaten as much as i wanted my host called out in his great voice for the butler whom i disliked at first sight he was a tall thin man with pouched eyes and an unnaturally sleek face the colour of tallow his hands were hairy blue with gunpowder and criss-crossed with livid scars however i soon forgot him in racking my memory for the old sea-tunes which his lordship wished to hear the latter sat upright in the ingle beating time to the choruses with his ebony cane or rather crutched stick which he leaned upon very heavily in his walk being as i supposed a sufferer from the gout the crutch itself was very massive and bound with gold bands i also played some polite melodies for the pleasure of her ladyship which she commended very earnestly but when she had wished us a good-night and retired to her chamber my lord cannebrake set out to curse all love-songs and country dances and bade me get back immediately to the sea-tunes which he loved so well presently he called for the butler springle and to my surprise and i may add profound vexation invited him to take a chair by the fire and join in the choruses i was shocked to see the familiar way in which this fellow treated his master and for my own part was quick to put the insolent rogue in his place as often as i could thus showing him very plainly how i esteemed his presumption one or two of my hits went very well with his lordship and though mr springle snarled at me from his chair i was not at all afraid to bait him whenever the circumstances of the conversation gave me an opportunity springle said his lordship after a round of tunes mr tripkeny must wet his whistle bring in another bottle of burgundy and warm me a noggin of rum i was amazed to hear a nobleman favour the plebeian beverage of rum and still more deeply amazed to hear his butler answer him very saucily ay ay without offering to move himself get up you impudent swab bellowed lord cannebrake what disobey orders would you you dog you whimpering sneering dirty ship steward mr springle perceiving he had made too free with his master's affableness rose at once and slunk from the hall my lord cannebrake growled to himself a while and then sat moodily silent staring into the fire i seized the occasion of the butler's absence to ask him point-blank why the first rounds of my flute had alarmed him so violently for said i there is nothing surprising at this jolly season of the year when waits and mummers are abroad in hearing the sound of music by night did i look frightened eh? asked the lordship ha and i was frightened woundily frightened i come sir of a plaguy old family and i live in a plaguy old house and i've inherited very little else but a plaguy crew of ghosts and you mistook me for one of em i laughed we starlings he went on like most old families have our omens and death cries and what not and it has always been accounted very ill work for a starling to hear a starling's whistle i was somewhat put about to learn that my playing had been mistaken for a vulgar bird's whistle but concealing my annoyance very genteelly laughed the matter off 
Indeed, my lord, I believe that is the first time that ever my flute was taken for a bird. Yes, he murmured, more to himself than to me, yes, I heard that whistle forty days out from Sierra Leone, and the next day we was flinging half-cooked niggers into the sea, and— He stopped suddenly and looked me full in the face, but I thought his mind was wandering and paid small attention to his wild words. And I heard it again when we were careening in the Pearl Islands off Panama just before I was took with Yellow Jack, but I've never heard it since till tonight. Ecod, I don't like being, my lord Cannebrick, with ghosts thick as seagulls round about. I was happier before. I was happier in the pleasant isle of Thanet with the sea-wind singing day and night round my cottage. I used to do nothing mostly, except sight the craft beating round the foreland, and think of em so white and handsome in the downs, a-stroking all the while my little daughter's light brown hair. And now look at me, stuck in a low, dirty swamp, ten miles from the sound of breakers, with nothing to think of but ghosts. That's bad for a man who, mark you, was a seafaring once. But there came an ague and took one, and another broke his neck out hunting, and the third he fell into the pool fishing for carp, and so I became Lord Cannebrick. I was at a loss to know why this elderly nobleman honoured me with his confidence, but ascribing it to the influence of the old sea-songs and my own insignificance, for I doubt he never thought me a person of much importance, and he went on with his monologue without seeming to expect any comment from me. Then there's Cynthia. Cannebrick's no place for a high-spirited young woman. London's a place for her where she can meet women of quality and learn the ways of fashion. She's a sweet maid. I never knew a sweeter. But what's to become of her, buried alive in a manner of speaking, and like to grow into a mumbling, fumbling old maid, with nothing to watch all her life but the sun's rise and set, and winter coming in cold, and springtime rain, and a few flowers of summer? Here I made bold to offer a suggestion that he should go back to the Isle of Thanet. Ah, why don't I, Mr. Flute-Player? I'll tell you why and he leaned over, whispering in my ear, "'Because I dare not! Because I lived a vile, bad life when I was young, and I'm afraid! That's a terrible thing for you to ponder, Mr. Tripkeny. An old man living alone in a dip of these wild moors, afraid, listening to the clock tick-ticking, and all the time fast afraid. You've seen me, white and shaking, when you tapped on the window. Me, Captain Starling, afraid!' Springle's entrance with rum enough for half a dozen put an end to further reminiscence. "'Why, Conrad,' said his lordship, "'why, Conrad, boy, I see you set a glass for yourself. That was thoughtful of you, Conrad.' Then suddenly the old man's fury broke out, very terrible. "'And so you'd make a nincompoop of me before my guests, would you? Below deck, you swab!' he roared, and, picking up one of the heavy cut-glass goblets, flung it between the butler's legs as he hurried from the hall. Lord Cannebrick laughed and made me fill up my glass while he poured out for himself an extra-strong allowance of rum. Master Springle thinks he can do as he likes because I give him a moderate amount of freedom, seeing that we were shipmates once. It is indeed a condescension on your part, my lord, for which the fellow shows himself monstrous ungrateful. I drink your lordship's very good health. He acknowledged the compliment by draining his glass to me, 
and I could not forbear my admiration to see how he poured the fiery liquor down his throat at a single gulp. I myself, a timid drinker, could never have survived the quarter of it sipped slowly. When he put down his glass I saw that he was sniffing the air as a stag sniffs for water. Tell me, he demanded, can you smell sea-water? So unusual a question put me in some confusion, for if I laughed it aside I would have seemed to suspect him of drunkenness. I determined, therefore, to humour his fancy, and told him very gravely that I could not smell sea-water. I doubt it's my fancy, he muttered, or rum, rum more likely, with which he gulped down a second glass even stronger than the former. All at once a horrid cry rang through the house. The long-drawn echo of it froze my blood, and set my glass clinking against the decanter in a tumult of apprehension. "'What's that?' gasped his lordship, and here, let me assure you, he looked as much alarmed as myself. I threw a glance up to the gallery, expecting to see her ladyship in bedgown peering over the balustrade, but there was nothing. Then Springle, his face as livid as his criss-cross scars on his hand, burst into the hall. "'Captain Starling! Captain Starling!' he cried. "'Aye, aye,' muttered my lord, in the dead voice of profoundest agitation. "'Captain Starling!' moaned the butler. "'Eh, what?' exclaimed his master. "'Who the plague are you calling Captain? Uh, ain't you learned tis my lord nowadays?' "'To blaze with my lords,' chattered Springle. "'Sea lords and landlords. Here's Captain Swall walking up the path to this house.' "'Captain Swall?' repeated his lordship. "'Captain Swall?' Here, give me the rum, my handsome. He drained the glass a third time, which seemed to calm his excitement. This ain't a fancy of yours, comrade? No fancy, my lord. I seed him quite plain, and the stars a-shinin' through his wicked bow legs as he come down the slope. But let him come, Springle almost screamed. Let the swab come. We're too many for him, with pleasant talk of old ships and a knife that goes in easy and quick-like. I confess I was amazed by the coolness with which the rascal proposed to murder a fellow-creature, and was relieved to hear his lordship discourage the notion. "'None of that,' he commanded, "'none of that. If tis Matthew Swall, tis him, and maybe there's a reckoning, and maybe there isn't, but none of that. If tis man to man, him and me, tis out in the moonlight with ship's cutlasses, and you and Mr. Tripconey here to see fair play.' So drink the rum, you cowardly dog, and stand by. Springle swallowed the spirit, and the three of us waited in silence till there came a ringing peal from the great bell, a peal that echoed jangling and clanging through Cannebrook of the Starlings. "'Must I let him in, Captain?' whispered Springle. There was a tap-tap on the lattice, but when we turned towards the sound the curtains were close-drawn, and we knew the man outside could not see us. "'Let him in,' said his lordship, standing up very stern. Conrad moved sideways to the door, and what with the way he kept twitching his hairy hands, and what with his chestnut-brown suit and his manner of walking, I could not help comparing him to a large crab. Captain Swall followed the servant into his master's presence. He was a short, thick-set, squab-nosed man, much weather-beaten, and wearing a soiled blue coat, trimmed with gold lace, frayed and tarnished. In his right hand he carried a cocked beaver hat, in the other a pistol. Flinging down the hat, he went with outstretched palm right up to Lord Cannebrook, saying, 
well if this don't beat payday messmate how are you lord cannebrick now ain't it and here's conrad springle and a boat o' rum and matthew swall of the happy return and why bless me he added catching sight of me here's a strange face after all his lordship never offered to present me but coming sharp to the point said i thought you were dead matthew i know you did dicky no more isn't that very astonishing seeing as i thought i were dead myself it was cunning move o yourn dicky that ere shearing off in jamestown it was a clever trick when you thought you'd quit being a gentleman of fortune to leave me layin' low with yellow jack and not a single golden george to so much as spit on not a single golden george to get me clear of virginia and the tobacco planters and i was took dicky i was took all right and sold five hundred miles up country to a frenchman whose throat i slit so as he died quicker nor ever you'd think a man could die mr tripkeny said his lordship to me i think you'll find your bedroom prepared springle show mr tripkeny to his chamber the butler with many a backward glance to where the two sea captains sat facing one another in the firelight led me up the wide stairs and parted from me by the door of my room without so much as a good night now whether the wicked flavour of captain swall's conversation had fascinated my imagination or whether the burgundy had fired my blood with an inquisitiveness foreign to my nature i do not know but for the life of me i could not help wondering how it fared with the party downstairs i resented being shut up out of sight and sound in this gaunt bedchamber and at last no longer able to bear my ignorance i snuffed the candle and crept barefooted along the black corridor as far as the opening to the hall here by kneeling close to the wall and peering through the balustrade i could see and hear all that was happening below i ran but small risk of discovery for as i reasoned it would be easy to gain my room noiselessly while any one from below was ascending the stairs lord cannebrook and his visitor were still seated facing one another while springle was standing well out of the way of both at the farther end of the hall but i don't want to fight dicky captain swall was saying i done with fighting long ago this here pop i holds in my hand so pretty that's not for fighting that's for protection dicky in case you was to leave me once again on a lee shore no i don't want no revenge nor nothing dicky but seeing as how i'm tired of roman and finds it dull at the prospect of whitney down by wapping stairs i've made a mind to sling my hammock at cannebrook so you think you're going to live at my expense do you asked his lordship grimly but you're not i don't feed ruffians like you matthew swall turned pious have ye sneered the other took to religion maybe changed the name of your ship that's a main unlucky thing to do and by he swore an abominable loath by bleh, won't go down with me not with old matthew springle my lad it looks as if you were ship's cook aboard here let's see the quality of your beef i could not help feeling greatly delighted by mr springle's discomfiture as he stood there in a fine quandary what mutiny conrad the captain went on as the butler made no offer to move you was quicker at obeying orders in the old days conrad you was a long way more spry arter i served you with your six dozen lashes you become quite a handy lad arter that 
quick and handy with that er clasp knife o yourn conrad when you done for the crew of the true love what was lying on their backs off calabar a waitin for you to obey orders come look alive my lad or you'll find yourself in bodman jail and tis captain swall who says so springle cowed by the fierce intruder gave up defiance and went to fetch the victuals that's a nice little place conrad's got himself continued swall with one eye cocked very wickedly at lord cannebrake do you want to be my butler demanded the latter no i wouldn't rob conrad there's room for both of us maybe you've got a snug little cabin somewhere between decks a snug little berth where you and me and conrad'll be able to talk over old times and old chips better you and i should talk over em quiet and comfortable and snug-like with the rum going round as it ought to in a gentleman's country house better nor talkin over em at old bailey why you've a darter haven't you dickie what did she say if she went for a cruise down the river one lovely morning in the summer time and seed her father black as a crow swingin in the wind at execution dock you won't blackmail me said my lord blackmail is it by the lord shouted captain swall black flags more the lay be careful matthew you know i'm a hot-blooded man you know i won't stand too much ah by the plague and you know mine dick starling and it ain't lost nothin these twenty years a waitin looky here it comes to this you've got a darter well again he swore that fearful oath if you don't give me your darter for i won't be put off with no fine words over jamestown dicky i'll have something o' yours as you valley i'll have your young maid or you swing for piracy but even while he threatened shaking the pistol lord cannebrake struck hard with his stick and captain swall fell forward among the glasses on the table springle his lordship gasped springle i've killed him han i then i saw that the butler was standing in the corner a plate of beef in his hand he came forward and setting down the plate shook the sprawling figure ay ay he's dead as his beef said springle we'll bury the body quick conrad wait i'll see he has no friends outside i could not help wondering at the old nobleman's pluck as i saw him move towards the door and thought of him marching round that desolate house with heaven knows how many bloodthirsty enemies ambushed in the shadows when his master had left the hall springle shook the body more roughly and to my horror for i thought him stone dead captain swall muttered thickly curse you dicky you nearly done for me a second time but you'll pay you'll pay looky here captain swall said springle turning the wounded man over and staring into his eyes two's company at cannebrake but three ain't you sent me off for beef you had me flogged once you've run aground captain swall here the fiend caught his enemy by the throat and as he squeezed the life out of the thick-set man spoke through clenched teeth you make em port at last captain swall i'll lay davy jones is about signalin your spirit now i suppose i should have interrupted the man's villainy but by this time between cramp and terror i could do nothing but lie quaking on the cold floor of the gallery lord cannebrake came back in a minute or two he's dead dead said the murderer and nobody will know said his lordship with a sigh of relief not if i don't preach what do you mean why just this here my lord i'm tired of being butler i wants promotion i reckon you'll sign some sort of a parley-voo as'll ensure my promotion 
Lord Cannebrake seemed stricken by his servant's treachery. "'Are you going to turn against me, Conrad?' "'You've been a fool,' said the latter, "'a fool for twenty years. Afraid of what I might say about the Jolly Roger. What could I have done, a poor ignorant seaman? What was my word against Lord Cannebrake's? You might have cut me adrift long ago, but now you can't. Now things is different. Here's murder stepped in on my side.' Ah, it has i shouted springing up black-hearted cold murder but it's you mr springle that's the murderer my lord my lord he strangled captain swall when you were outside that villain there that ruffian in my bare feet and waving my flute i came dancing down the stairs a ludicrous figure i dare swear but jubilant at having outwitted the butler he had his knife out in a flash and i owed my life to his lordship who without a thought of the scandal picked up the dead man's pistol and shot his servant through the back so that he fell huddled at the foot of the staircase then lord cannebrake and i looked at each other with two bodies between us her ladyship i said we'll have to tell her i felt sorry for the old man who had kept his secret so many years but the hall was now running with conrad's blood and i thought we should do well enough to escape the law her ladyship came along the gallery, very pale and beautiful. "'What is it, father? I heard a shot.' "'A bad night's work, my lady love,' said the father gently. "'But Mr. Tripkeny here has saved Cannebrake.' "'And his lordship has saved me,' I cried. "'Then we should all be grateful,' said my lady, very calm. I slept prodigious little that night, and blistered my hands so that I couldn't play my flute for a week but I was always sure for many a year of a hearty welcome at Cannebrake of the Starlings. End of Story 10